Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. An old woman known to all of her neighbors as Garbage Mary lived in a small town in Florida. Every day she would be seen dressed in rags and walking the streets. She'd be scavenging through garbage cans for food, which she hoarded in her car or in her two-room apartment. She was a recluse with no friends, and as she scrounged cigarettes and ice cubes from anybody who was available, it was logical to believe that she was an old woman who was rapidly losing her mind and living on the verge of destitution. Finally, Garbage Mary was picked up by the police and confined to a psychiatric institution. When the officials went to her apartment to collect a few of her personal effects, they were amazed to discover that there was money everywhere. Scattered throughout her apartment and her car were bank books, stock securities, oil drilling rights, real estate documents, and cash. Once tallied, it was found out that Garbage Mary was worth more than $1 million. Those documents also indicated that she wasn't really an old woman, but a 48-year-old college graduate who had inherited a great deal of money when her father died back in 1974. Further investigation revealed that she had experienced two really unhappy marriages, and her brother felt that the resulting trauma may have caused her physical condition. Whatever the reason, the tragedy remains. Here was a woman abounding in the physical resources she needed to meet all of her physical needs, but instead she was foraging through garbage and living in rags while her resources went unused and neglected. Now think about that this morning. While her money collected interest, she collected garbage. The tragedy of Garbage Mary is neglected resources. But here's the thing. If we are not careful this morning, we can all run the risk of becoming a spiritual Garbage Mary. Even though the Bible promises us that we have all that we need to live a godly and a productive life, we can instead feed on garbage and waste the time that God has given us to make a difference in this world. This morning, Jesus is going to give us both a promise and a warning. The promise is that if we abide in him, we are guaranteed to bear much fruit. And the warning is, without him, we can do nothing. Look at verse 5 with me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Imagine you needed to go upstairs, and the only way up was an escalator coming down. How would you make progress in a situation like that? Only through tremendously breathtaking and breathless exertion. On the other hand, How in that situation would you regress? How would you lose ground? In a situation like that, you wouldn't have to do anything wrong. You just have to do nothing at all, and you're going to lose ground. Now, life is a down escalator. Everybody knows there is a theory of decay in this world. So you don't have to do anything wrong in order to go bad. You just don't have to do anything at all. Romans 8 tells us that this creation is subject to decay. It groans. 
I think everybody knows this implicitly. Your body, if you do nothing with it, I mean, you don't have to do anything bad to it. If you just do nothing with it, it's going to go bad. The same thing goes for your car and your home and for your entire life, really. If I choose to do only what pleases my flesh, which would be eating Cocoa Puffs every single day, I should not be surprised when I step on the talking scale and it says, one person at a time, please. <laughs> That's just how life is. Simply put, there's a principle of decay in this universe. Life is a down escalator, and we all know it. So if you want to do better, if you want to move forward, if you want to make progress, then it is going to be some hard work. But if you want to regress, if you want to lose ground, you don't have to do anything. Just do nothing. That's the way life is. In other words, gravity isn't just physical, it is also historical. Life itself, just the passing of time, leads to decay. How then can you progress in your character? But first let me ask us, what is our character? Your character is who you are when no one else is looking, when you're not on, and when no one can see you. It is the real you, not the Facebook glamorized version of you. So how honest are you really? How confident are you? How joyful are you? How pure are you when no one else is around? That, my friends, is our character. So how can you make progress in your character? Well, the answer is we all know that it's going to be extremely difficult. And if you're not consciously working on your character, on improving it, if you're not proactively working at growing, then we all know what happens. Time and life itself just pulls us down. So the question is, once again, how then can we grow in our character? Now, most people would say that with tremendous difficulty. In fact, a lot of people say that it can't even be done. I mean, can the selfish really become unselfish? Can the controller become a liberator? Can the hard become soft and tender? Can the wimpy become courageous? Look, we all know that we need to grow. And we know that the cards are stacked against us, and we know that we're swimming upstream. We realize growth in character and progress is a most difficult thing. And the Bible really gives us more about growth than any book that I know. The Bible is all about growth. The Bible is about how you can escape the down escalator, how you can escape the natural tendency for you to get harder as time goes on and more anxious as time goes on. Today, here's what I want to show you. The scripture tells us that in Jesus Christ, growth is not just possible, it is actually inevitable. The passage tells us why we can grow and how we can grow and why we must grow. Now, in Jesus, we get a little glimpse of what this abiding life is like. Not just that, Jesus makes this staggering claim in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. Now, what do we have here? The image shows us that our relationship with him is incredibly intimate. 
because a branch is only truly joined to the stem if the life of the stem, the moisture of the stem, gets out of the ground and makes its way to the branch. The branch has no access to it other than that. The branch is not touching the ground, but the stem touches the ground. And if the branch is truly joined to the stem, then the life of that comes into the branch so the branch can grow. Therefore, if a branch is not growing, if there are no blossoms, if there is no enlargement, if there is no fruit, then it's not truly joined to that stem. Now, it might be apparently joined. It might be superficially joined, but it's not organically joined. Therefore, growth is the essence of the relationship between a branch and a stem. There you have it. I am the vine, and you are the branches. What could be more revolutionary than that? That's the reason we said that Christianity isn't simply a set of beliefs to adopt. It's not a set of ethics to subscribe to, nor is it even a cathartic spiritual experience, even though all those things may be involved. So what is it? It's an inner penetration of our nature. It's a change of our heart. Theologians call it the regeneration. You see, being born again is not just a mystical, emotional experience, even though that's the way that most people understand it on the street. Being born again means your heart has been uprooted and replanted into a new stem and into new soil. The very life of heaven then comes into your life, and you have union with Christ, and that is the basis for our growth. Now, I like this. In the beginning of verse 2, it says there was no fruit. In the middle of verse 2, there was fruit. At the end of verse 2, there was more fruit. And here in verse 5, it says there is much fruit. But how is that fruit produced? Simply by abiding. And that's what Jesus is really getting out here. We might know how we should behave and what we should do, but if we are cut off from the Lord, if we're distanced from the Lord, if we're out of fellowship with the Lord, there will not be any fruit in our life. We need to be in his presence daily and in his word continually. If not, we're going to cut off the flow of that sap that would have produced fruit for his pleasure and rewards in eternity. So if there's a lack of fruit in our lives, we mustn't say, I can't understand why there's not more fruit coming my way. Because it is an irrefutable fact of spiritual life that every man and woman is only as close to the Lord as they choose to be. And if you choose to abide in him, if you choose to intertwine your life with his, to wrap yourself around him and stay close to him, the Bible promises you, you will doubtless bear much fruit. So how is it produced? By abiding and not struggling, by striving, or not striving, but simply abiding. Let me give you a homework assignment. Pack yourself a lunch and find an apple tree somewhere. Now closely watch the apples. Do you see them struggling and straining? Do you see them shivering and shaking as they try to grow? No, of course not. They just hang in there attached to the limb, and then the growth naturally happens. What does the apple branch do? It just hangs in there day after week after month after year. And in due season, the blossoms come and the apples appear 
and there's fruit, all because it just hangs in there. So too, you just keep hanging in there with the Lord. And as the days turn into weeks, months, and years, you will see fruit, and then more fruit, and then finally much fruit. If you think about it, our union with Christ is a living union so we may bear fruit. It's a loving union so we may enjoy him. And it's a lasting union so we need not be afraid. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. This is why Philippians 1.6 reminds us that he, speaking of God, he who began a good work in you, it was his doing, and he will be the one to be faithful to complete it. Now that gives me great comfort. If you've ever put together a model airplane or a jigsaw puzzle, you know what that means. You purchase it, and you begin to work on it with an ending in mind. Now, what part does that model or puzzle play in that process? Nothing. They just lay there awaiting for their creator to finish that work. Now, that's not a perfect example because those things don't have free will. And I do believe that while God will complete the work he started in the true Christian, we can make that process easier or harder by our obedience or disobedience. So we do have a part to play, and it's this. If we abide, we are going to naturally do good works. Now, some of you may not know this, but the building that you are sitting in this morning used to be the Department of Agriculture before we turned it into a Calvary Chapel. Now, I think God has a great sense of humor because isn't that what it is even today? But instead of concentrating on growing things like food, it's now where God grows people. We were made to make a difference beyond ourselves. We were made for significance. Significance as it relates to the root word of that, which is the word sign. Our lives are meant to be signs that point beyond ourselves to God. And allow me to remind us again, external results are not necessarily fruit. A Judas may carry the gospel and proclaim it, and souls may even be saved in consequence of that. But that would not be fruit from that messenger. On the other hand, let the heart be true. Let the soul be in unhindered fellowship with Christ. And although no outward results in the way of conversion may be seen, God will be glorified because there will be the fruit of godliness of that particular laborer. Jesus means that the disciples should live such lives that they will continue to abide in him. Now, these two abidings cannot be separated, and abiding is a necessary prerequisite of fruitfulness. No branch bears fruit in isolation. It must have a vital connection with the vine. So to abide in Christ is a necessary prerequisite of fruitfulness for any Christian. Now, I'm not a horticulturist, but I am told by those who know such things that a vine needs to be cultivated at least three years before being allowed to produce fruit at all. That is, it must be trimmed and then allowed to grow, then be trimmed again and then be allowed to grow, and so on for a considerable length of time. Only after this does it become useful in bearing fruit. Now, in the same way, there may be times in our lives this morning when we can seem to go for considerable periods undergoing rather radical treatment from the Father 
and yet we see little fruit from those times. Now, at such times, we may even doubt if there will ever be any fruit in our lives. But that is only because we do not see as God sees. We do not have his perspective. So do not get discouraged if this has happened to you. Instead, remember that Jesus promises fruit in due time if we truly remain in him in a close and personal way. Stay stay close to me, Jesus saying. Abide in me. Cling to me. Because if you don't, there won't be any fruit coming from your life. And fruit is vital to spiritual life presently. And once again, it will affect us eternally. What does that look like this morning? Galatians 5.22 teaches that the fruit of the Spirit is love. So love, I think, is the ultimate fruit. But what about joy and peace and long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, and faith, meekness, and self-control? Doesn't Galatians also list those as fruit? Yes, but it is the fruit, not the fruits of the Spirit, being singular. I think those things are just definitions of what love is. So when your life is filled with love, when you're giving financially, when you're praising the Lord verbally, when you're doing good things practically, when you're witnessing to the lost boldly, when you're joyful, patient, peaceful, and kind, all of those things constitute fruit. Here's a verse, for example, in 2 Peter. It's always kind of glowed in the dark to me, even in the darkest times of my life. 2 Peter 1 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our personal knowledge of him, that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the decay that is in this world. Here is the stem, and through that you may participate in the divine nature in him. Here are the branches, and here is the fruit. Therefore, according to that verse, we have everything we need for life and godliness that we may escape the decay that is in this world. And that decay, that's the down escalator. Do you see that? Only by participating in the very life of the Godhead and being grafted into the stem of Jesus Christ can we possibly escape the down escalator. My beloved... Some of you in here just need to give up your small ambitions. Why don't you take a look at yourself this morning and see that though intellectually you may believe what I said, practically speaking, you are living with some things in your life that you shouldn't be doing because you've given up on trying to change them. There are things in your life that are hurting you, that are bothering you, and that are creating misery and shame, and in some cases, that and the people of those around you. And really, you've just given up on yourself. What God is saying to you here is, what in your life could be so bad? What could be so stubborn? What habits could be so intransient? What stain could be so deep that the life of God itself cannot lift that out? I am the vine. You are the branches. You say, but I I feel so weak. Well, of course you feel so weak. It says here, I am the vine, you are the branches, and apart from me, you can do nothing, which is the last part I want to address. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It seems to me 
that all of us are born with selfish instincts. It doesn't take a toddler very long to learn a couple powerful one-word sentences. And they are, no and mine. Have you ever been amazed at the ownership that a toddler can have? If he gets his grubby little hands on an empty plastic dish, it doesn't matter what mother intended to do with that dish. Mine screams the selfish little savage, and the battle is on. Not Adlin. <laughs> it wouldn't matter if the object were a piece of trash or a priceless work of art. Once his hands are on it, it's mine. Well, that's ridiculous. Why? Little children can't comprehend the value of things or that someone worked very hard to buy that particular work of art. Children can't understand responsibility, time, earnings, or value, but they immediately understand the concept of possession. Now, sadly, we don't grow out of that just because we have a third birthday. By the time a person is 30 or 50 or 70, they usually have a chance to look up into the heavens, clutch their little hands into a fist, and say to God, it was mine. But God, that was my good health. It was mine. I want it. I don't want this disease. I'm tired of the way I feel. I'm sick of having these surgeries. I want it back. But God, I earned that money. Why did the stock market have to do that now? That was my retirement. It was mine. But God says the woman by the fresh grave, he was mine. But God says the mother staring at an empty room of her 18-year-old daughter, she was mine. No, says God to the two-year-old and all of us. It wasn't yours at all. She wasn't. He wasn't. You're not even yours. It all belongs to me, for I am God. Let's always remember, without him, we can do nothing. However, bearing fruit means that we can do wonderful things in our lives for both God and his kingdom. And in that, we really don't have to try all that hard. Instead, all we have to do is make sure we are abiding. And if we are abiding, the natural works will be part of that. That's what it means to abide in the vine. It means to live intimately with Jesus from one moment to the next. Now, if you don't do that, Jesus says... Nothing much is going to come out of your life. It's kind of like he invites his followers into an experiment because he knows they are just ordinary and common people. And he wants the entire world to see what God can do with those common people who abide in him. Now, the last sentence of this section introduces a warning. Lest in our budding enthusiasm for bearing fruit for God, we forget that we cannot do anything apart from him. Apart from me, says Jesus, you can do nothing. Now, the context of John 15 gives us the steps for successful fruit bearing. And the first is to recognize our own inability to produce that fruit. Jesus says that abiding in him involves the belief that apart from me, you really, truly can do nothing. You're thinking, wait a minute. Actually, there are all kinds of things we can do without Christ. We can earn a living, raise a family, practice generosity. In my case, it is possible to pastor a church without abiding. 
it is possible to counsel people without abiding. So what does Christ mean? He means we cannot bear real, true, authentic spiritual fruit without abiding in him. Now, we can tie fruit onto our limbs like ornaments on a Christmas tree, but the real fruit of the character comes from the vine itself. We can do nothing without him. We cannot be truly loving or patient or faithful or holy. Nothing can be done without him. So do we want our lives to make any kind of difference while we are down here? And so if we do, we must remember that the branches do not eat the fruit. Other people do. So we are not producing fruit just to please ourselves, but we are producing it to serve others. We should be the kind of people who feed others by our words and our works. And once again, this can only come through abiding. And that is why God does not shield us from the assaults of life, but rather exposes us to them so that we will learn that we need to hold fast even in the hard times. Now, we may do a lot of things in our own flesh, as I mentioned with me, and think we are bearing fruit. But Jesus here warns us that in the end, it will be shown for what it truly was. Listen to how 1 Corinthians 3 puts it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work for what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. But if anyone else's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through that fire. On that passage, Watchman Nee writes, In the work of God today, things are often so constituted that we really have no need to rely on God. But the Lord's verdict on all such work is uncompromising. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Such a man can do apart from God as wood, hay, and stubble, and the test of fire will prove it so. He finishes by saying, For divine work can only be done by divine power, and that power is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. So that teaches us that the only fruit, the only works that we do that will truly matter, only those that will be done will be those that we were abiding in the vine. Does it say, apart from me, you cannot do the big things? Apart from me, you cannot do much? No, not at all. It says, apart from me, you can do nothing, zero, zip, nada. So really, the first step towards successful fruit bearing is to recognize our own nothingness and to, at that point, start with Christ. He must become greater. We must become less. And religious activity is no substitute. It was Martin Luther who said, God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until man understands he is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. Case in point is the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They were fastidiously concerned about all the religious matters. But they are also shown in the Bible to be some of the most miserable people you would ever want to come across. Picture a combination of the soup Nazi from Seinfeld and the rudest DMV worker you've ever had a nightmare about, 
combine them, and that's pretty close to what a Pharisee was. Sometimes God has to remind us that we need him, and our own personal strength will never be enough. We need to remember that Jesus is God, and we are not. Or as Keith Green used to sing, he is divine, and we are branches. I didn't say it. He said it. As we close, think of the story of Gideon. On the day of a big battle, Gideon has 32,000 men under him for war. That sounds pretty good until we read the size of the army he's getting ready to go against. It says, Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as numerous as the sands on the seashore. But it gets worse. God tells Gideon to tell anyone who is afraid they can just go on home. So Gideon looks up and 22,000 men are gone. That's bad. But it gets even worse. Now God says, nope, still way too many. He gives them a test by making them stoop to drink water, and now that eliminates 9,700 of the 10,000. So poor Gideon at this point is just staring at 300 men probably thinking, this day just possibly can't get any worse. But that passage in Judges 7 is one of the most important sections in the Bible for understanding God's principle of spiritual warfare and of trusting him. You see, God is not simply interested in giving his people victory. He is concerned with teaching them their need for trust. In fact, if our victories make us self-reliant, they are actually more disastrous than the defeat would be. But it happens over and over again. We trust God. He does good things for us. We begin to see growth and progress, and other people begin to applaud us. And pretty soon, we have a tendency to take credit for what belongs to God alone. We take the glory due God for ourselves. And that's what Gideon's story there is all about. God demanded a troop reduction because he said, lest Israel become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. I just want to leave us with one last thought. God has set up things where he is the one and the only one to receive glory. That is both due him and a protection for us. Why? To keep us from pride. I read about some travelers who happened upon a remote island where they found the people there were worshiping the moon. The visitors talked to them about it and said, it's really strange that you worship the moon. If you really want to worship something in the skies, why don't you worship the sun instead? And the natives replied, it's very simple. The sun only shines by day when it is light and we do not need it. But the moon shines at night when we cannot see. Now, of course, what they did not understand is that the light of the moon depends entirely upon the sun. But every time you and I take credit for the glory that belongs to God for something he has done through us, we are doing exactly the same thing. So I pray, oh Lord, keep us from that and let us abide in you. Let us pray. So thankful, Lord, that you've begun that good work in me. Otherwise, I would have never came to you. I was vile and foul and uh, enjoying that life I thought, 
But I'm thankful, Lord, that you grafted me in. You grafted others in here in also. That we may have the life-flowing gift of your Holy Spirit. And as Jonathan was saying, we never want to go back to those old ways because they are empty and dead. But make us productive, Lord. Make us fruitful. Prune us and cause us to bear fruit for your glory. We ask in Christ's name, amen.